Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February the 16th, 2017, and this is episode 1954 of the Survival Podcast. Since it's a Thursday, that means it's a listener call show. That's where you call the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You call that number, or you can go to the SpeakPipe. So the way to go to the SpeakPipe, go to the survivalpodcast.com, look in the center column down a little bit, and you'll see the SpeakPipe button. And as long as you have microphones on your computer, I think you can use it from your mobile device as well, you hit that button, you record a message, you enter your name and email address, and hit send, and it'll come to me in the SpeakPipe. I think we have about four calls off the SpeakPipe today. Either way, the formula for your call is the same. Make your point or ask your question immediately. One sentence is all you need to be able to do that. Trust me, if you know what you're asking or what you're saying, you can do it. Then, give your details after that. The other thing that you need to do, call from a quiet area and make sure you have a good connection if you're on a cell phone. Because there'll be nobody there to tell you you sound all chopped up if you sound all chopped up. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? i got a bunch of calls because some of them are going to be brief responses, uh, and that way I can cover a lot of variety for you today and get more listeners on the air. I'm going to be trying to do more and more of that uh, as we go forward. I have a uh, uh, first a lead story is going to be why the song of the day, being the number one song of the year, cannot go all the way up to the year 2017. It can't happen, it won't happen, it's not going to happen, and I'll tell you why. And if you're the person that pointed out to me, you already know what I'm going to say. Next up, uh, the advantages of a hammerless handgun, or a gun that's maybe double action, has a hammer, but the hammer doesn't protrude uh, with concealed carry. We'll talk about that. There's there's a real issue there, and and there's, there's something to be said about it. Uh, I have a call, call from Jason in PA that says, hey, we're already in the middle of a civil war. The United States is in a civil war right now. Uh, at the government level, and we'll talk about that. Is it really any different than it's been before, or does it just look that way, or what have you? And <clears throat> could we ever go to like a, a shooting civil war in this country? And I'll give you my thoughts on it. Propagation of Jerusalem artichokes. That's not something difficult to do, but we have a unique situation. Really not, but just, hey, I'm not quite sure what I should do in this situation. Uh, easy answer on that one. Using forest soil in a new garden. I'll talk about that. What exactly is a tow plow, and why should we care? What does it mean for the economy, a tow plow? Um, Comfrey's role in a garden bed for establishment. Uh, Sony Creative Cloud for content creators is pretty interesting. Uh, how do you deal with trolls? I got a question from a guy that's got his first YouTube channel success, and his, his first real success is getting a few subscribers and attracting a troll. What do you do with trolls? That's an easy answer, and I'll, I'll tell you about it when we get to it. Proper storage of jerky. You've made up your beef jerky and your dehydrator, and now you want to store it. Here's why I'll, I'll tell you today why I don't recommend vacuum sealing for jerky. And a teacher quits for all the right reasons, and she's still a teacher. And I mean, she quit her job, but she still has a job as a teacher, but she doesn't work in a school anymore. And I don't mean in some roundabout way. I mean, she still has a job, and could this be a blueprint for the future? It's coming, folks. And this one... When you hear it, you'll know why. It kind of hit me right in the feels when I when I heard this lady's call. All that more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. 
Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the uh, TSP Wiki uh, year that was the episode. The year is 1954. I have two today, one from Alex Shrugged, Brown versus the Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas. And U.S. supports all democracies except when it doesn't, contributed by Southpaw Ben. Notable births as well uh, this year. We have Hugo Chavez, who died at 58. After rule, you know, running Venezuela into communism, and of course, disaster always follows that. Al Sharpton born this year. Alex Shrugg says I hate him. I think the list of people that hate Alex Shrugged, Al, hate Al Sharpton, Alex Shrugged is pretty long. I'm on that list too. What a race baiting piece of shit is what that guy is. All I can say. Condoleezza Rice born this year. Carly Fiorina was born this year. CEO of Hewlett Packard and presidential candidate. Kind of laughable as a presidential candidate, uh, but she was there. I guess, you know, in entertainment, Howard Stern, Matt Groening, that's the creator of The Simpsons and Futurama, Oprah Winfrey, if I have to tell you who she is, you're living under rock, John Travolta, well-known Scientologist nutjob, and Ron Howard, Opie from The Andy Griffith Show, all born this year. This year in film, 1954, Godzilla premieres in Japan, Raymond Burr will be edited into the movie by 1955. Rear Window, an Alfred Hitchcock thriller starring Jimmy Stewart, still worth watching, says Alex Drugged. I agree. That was a good movie. And Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, starring James Mason. The year in music, Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes. The music for Back to the Future as well. Number one song of the year, you'll hear it at the end of today's show. Secret Love by Doris Day in the movie Calamity Jane. And Life Could Be a Dream, Shaboom by the Crew Cuts. You know, if there's a song that typifies the mid-50s, man, that that song does it. Um, Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile in this year. J.R.R. Tolkien publishes The Lord of the Rings. And high school boys will be reading it for, well, ever, I think. The TV dinner is served as an in-flight meal. An array of compartments are arranged in the shape of a TV. You would have to see an old TV to understand how, indeed. And many of us have seen those old TVs and watched them. Anyway, so <clears throat> let's look at South Bob Ben's contribution today. But I recommend you read Alex on Board of Brown versus the Board of Education, one of the most landmark decisions in our legal system. And it's not the end of the problem. It's the beginning of the end of the problem. All right, the U.S. sports all democracies, except when it doesn't. In 1950, Guatemala had its second democratic election for president. During this election, uh, Jacob Arbenez beat the predecessor, Juan Jose Alvaro, uh, in a move intended to set precedent to encourage peace, peaceful, future peaceful transitions of power. Alvaro did not contest the election and peacefully transferred power to Arbenez. 
One of Arbenev's biggest promises while on campaign was his agrarian reform bill, which would expatriate uncultivated land from large landowners to their laborers. This was the justification used by the CIA as to why this democratically elected government had to be deposed. As this clearly meant, Arbenez was a communist with ties to Moscow. Despite this, when the CIA looked for documentation proving this tie after the coup, not enough was found to convince even the authors writing under CIA backing in the future. The coup started with an invasion of 480 men trained and armed by the CIA on June 18, 1954, backed with support of large amount of psychological warfare using such tactics as having radio stations broadcasting anti-Arbenez propaganda, the guise of being legitimate news. Would we call that fake news? I think we'd call that fake news. That's my little side note there. And the bombing of Guatemala City. By, 19, by June 27th, the coup was successful. Arbenez resigned from office, eventually being replaced by U.S.-backed dictator General Miguel Yagores Fuentes, causing years of bloody civil war. Yay, America! Yeah, yeah, that's all true stuff, guys. My take by Southpaw Ben. While the CIA claimed that the whole reason for staging the coup was because Guatemala was linked to the USSR, this doesn't quite pass the sniff test because of Arbenez's Uh, agrarian reform, the United Fruit Company was set to lose massive amounts of land and lose massive amounts of money for having to pay its workers a fair wage. As a result, they lobbied heavily to convince the president that Guatemala was linked to the USSR and backed the CIA's plan. The United Fruit Company had many ties with the CIA during this time, used and used them to their advantage. It's because of ties like these with big business that makes me question the government whenever they claim to be doing something for a moral reason. While these, there are some people willing to accept what government says at face value, especially among my generation, the millennials, I always wonder who is really benefiting from these actions in the long term, especially when that group happens to have deep pockets and lobbyists. Um, <clears throat> a couple things this makes me think of. Number one, do you know what we call it when government and industry collude? Yes, we call that system of economics, folks, fascism. Yes, this is fascism at its finest, and it's us spreading fascism in Central America. USA, number one, right? I mean, this is only a few years after we defeated the, the most evil fascist regime of all time. There's no doubt about that. And here we go installing a fascist dictator because it met with our agenda. It met with our agenda. Uh, another thing, Southpaw Ben says many of his... Uh, his his uh, cohorts in his age group accept government at face value. No, they don't. No, see, they're actually proof that they, they, they prove themselves that they don't understand how government's supposed to work. They accept government at face value whenever the people they think are in charge are in charge. They think should be in charge or in charge. But gee, Trump wins an election, and it's not my president, and, and all this freaking out about all these things that Trump's going to do now. This is what I, this is, when you want to see a group of people that don't understand the state, when they're comfortable with one person and uncomfortable with another, and the only thing that changes the person and not the system, they don't understand the system. They don't understand the system. If you wouldn't be comfortable with anybody as president, the president has too much power and authority. If you wouldn't be comfortable with anybody as a senator or a congressman, then the Senate has too much power and authority. If you wouldn't be comfortable with anybody as your mayor, your mayor has too much power and authority. If you wouldn't be comfortable with anybody as the head of the board of your HOA, your HOA and the head of the board have 
too much power and authority. It's called pattern recognition, and it's something that our young people aren't very good at, and there's a reason. There's a reason for it. See, your government knows that if people are good at pattern recognition, they'll recognize the patterns that government uses to control people, and therefore, they will cease to work. It's a lot like a magic trick. When I was a little kid, my dad showed me how you could take his thumb off. And probably everybody out there knows this little mini illusion. You take your, your, your left hand, you make a fist like you want to break your thumb when you punch something, you put your thumb on the inside of it, and then you take your ring finger and put it over the thumb of your right hand. You put them together, and you bring it up, and you show it to the little kitty, and go, watch me pull my thumb off, you woo! And the little kid goes, oh! Right? And if somebody does that to you, what do you say? That's stupid. Stop doing that. There's no kid here to see it. Why? Because you recognize the pattern. You know how the illusion works. It's not impressive anymore. Well, that's how government works. When you recognize the systems and patterns of control, they cease to have the effect of controlling you. And that's why in all this shit that we've seen with our educational system changing, you know what we've never seen taught to our children in schools? Basic pattern recognition. Basic pattern recognition. And there's another reason for that. See, there's a concept that uses the word pattern. It's called a pattern of behavior. Pattern of behavior. And we use that when we look at something like somebody in the criminal justice system. First offense, they have not yet established a pattern of behavior. Maybe we go a little more lenient on them. If we look at a rap sheet, it becomes progressively worse, and they've always been in trouble. They have a deviant pattern of behavior, and therefore we go a little bit more assertive on them. Imagine if we looked at the pattern of behavior of our government. I'm just saying. No wonder they don't teach this shit in school. My take by Jack Spierko. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. Okay, and as I said during uh, the, the, the kind of the intro segment, uh, my lead story today is not really a call. It's the fact that the future of the song of the day has been determined to a degree. We, we, I kind of said we'll do it through the Warriors and we'll see how it goes. And we're going to do it for a while yet, okay? Because I think, I think looking back at music from these times in America really gives us a look into the people and the culture. And I'm, I'm starting to see patterns there that I didn't see. And I guess you could say that no matter how bad the number one song of the year is, there's that value to it. It can show us patterns. Well, what it shows us going into the mid-90s and 2000s is a pattern of stupidity in America. Uh, so much so that it gets to a point where I can't do it. So somebody posted, uh, Jack, I can think of a, re on the blog, I can think of a reason you can't go all the way forward with this. One word, Macarena. And I thought, well, when was Macarena, you know, released? 
So I looked it up, and the year it was released, it's not number one for the year. The second year, the year after, it's not number one for the year. Not the greatest song. Like Coolio's Gangster's Paradise is number one for the year after it was released. But, I mean, that's not the worst song ever or anything. Macarena may be the worst song ever made. I, it's just unbelievably horrible. And uh, I, I posted, he said, I think you need to look forward to, like, 1996 when it was re-released. Ah, shit. So I go to Playback FM, which, by the way, is where I determine who was the number one song of the year. And uh, Macarena is the number one song of the year in 1996. So I don't know where we're going to call it good and go back to maybe just picking stuff, but it won't, be, it won't make it to 1996. And I even thought this. You know what I'll do? I, Jack, will say, there's a point where we've reached a level of stupidity that cannot be forgiven, but surely... There was a song that made the top ten for the year that would be worth playing from any year all the way up till now. It turns out, no, no, there isn't. Um, I think 99 or 2000 uh, shares believed. You believe? Oh, God. It's like nails on a chalkboard. How did that thing? And I looked at the top ten of that year, too, and I'm like, I can't. There's just none of this I could play. And some of it maybe I, I don't want to, but I could play. I am not playing frickin' Macarena on the frickin' Survival Podcast. That is not going to happen. I'll play Beethoven or Mozart or Bach, but I am not playing frickin' Macarena. Um, it's not just a brand association. There's just certain things a man will not do. This was a horrible song. Because I remember back in the late 90s, right, the, the mid to late 90s, It'd be just around the time I, I met Dorothy, but it was when I was still single, and I would go to the bars a lot and all. These cowboy bars, just huge cowboy bars, a thousand people in a place, uh, line dancing and stuff like that. They played that song, and there'd be there'd be two hundred, three hundred women and, and like five idiot guys out on the dance floor doing the freaking macarena at a at, a, at a, a country bar. It was an, it was obscene. It was horrible. It was funny. But, God, no, it won't happen. So we're going to have to make some determinations about where we call this. But through the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, and probably the 80s, we'll do this because it is a look back at who we were. So with that, I have the uh, first call of the day. Let's go ahead and take that call. Hey, Jack, this is Chris from Plano. A quick question about carrying it around in the chamber. I'm trying to take your advice and adjusting so I carry around in the chamber at all times, but I was wondering, is there an advantage or a disadvantage if my gun has a hammer on it, do I decock it, or, I mean, is there any benefit, does it snag on anything? Anyway, would like to know your thoughts. Thanks so much for all you do. Bye. Okay, well, I think we have to separate this question from the round in the chamber thing. I think it depends on the gun. There is no question that if you're carrying for self-defense and you're carrying without one in the pipe, you're wrong. And I promise you, you will not find a professional trainer uh, or a professional law enforcement person or anybody like that anywhere that knows what the hell they're doing that will tell you anything, any different, period, infinity. Um, it, carrying without a round in the chamber is, is in some ways worse than not carrying at all. Because when a crisis situation happens, it's potentially lethal. Every millisecond counts. But the other thing that happens is we immediately do what? We go for the gun. Okay. If you're not carrying, 
you're going to do something else. And you might be more likely to survive by doing that something else than fumbling with a gun. Bad guy sees gun. Bad guy definitely commits to killing you now while you're dicking around with it trying to chamber around. So that's a, that's a moot point. I won't have a debate about that or, or much discussion. Now, hammer versus hammerless and, and versus how we carry a gun. One gun that I carry frequently because I love them is a 1911. I carry a 1911 cocked and locked. Hammer back, safety on. Okay, cocked and locked, round in the chamber. Gun comes out, thumb hits safety, gun goes bang. And there's plenty of time from when that gun leaves the holster till you get to bear on the target, even if you're doing a belly point, to get that, that off. There's, there's no hiccup there. If you, if you don't get the job done, it's not going to be because of that. I also carry a, a SIG 239. It's a, it's a double action gun. It's actually really more accurately a double single, right? So, You can when you when you chamber around with it, your hammer will be back. You are in that position. It has a decocking lever though, so we then decock that gun, and then when we pull that first shot, it's a long pull. The hammer comes back, goes forward, but we don't have to cock the hammer. We just have a long pull on the first pull of the trigger. Trust me, in a situation where you're using it for defense, it's not going to matter. However, after that first shot and the slide goes forward, it now acts like a single shot with a lighter, lighter trigger and the hammer's back. All right? Then we have guns like Glocks, which are dump, pure double action, right? We have guns that are hammerless, that are pure double action. And to me, we carry the gun as it's designed to be carried. So there are guns that basically do not have a safety, and they're long pull double action. So you're not going to tap the trigger and set it off. Well, that gun's carried round in the pipe, magazine loaded, you know, in the holster. There's guns that have a safety. That safety should be on if it exists. There's a reason that it's there. The advantage, I guess, though, of anything that's either hammerless or can be carried as though it were hammerless. So there might be a hammer there, but it's got no, no horn on it. You can't thumb cock it, and it's, it's recessed flat when it's being carried. And again, it's like, it's like the SIG. It stays back after that slide goes, but when you're carrying it, it's flush. It's, it's one less point of failure. Nothing's going to hang on it. If I was recommending that someone get a, uh, a snub-nosed revolver, and they were going to carry it as like a pocket pistol in a jacket pocket or something like that, I would highly recommend you go hammerless, the end. Because that might even be something that gets shot through through the clothing. And I know everybody's like, you got to have a holster, you got to have a... There are situations where carrying in a pocket or something like that makes sense. There just, there just are. And I'll tell you, a compact... Uh, semi-auto carries beautifully on the inside left pocket of a jean jacket. Your standard Levi style jean jacket where you put your hands in from the front, but the pocket has like a second pocket on the back side. I mean, it's it's it carries beautifully, and it's a very quick draw. It's the left hand goes to the the jacket and the right hand. It's like carrying with a shoulder holster, but you can actually freaking carry concealed. Um, So there are times for things like that. Anytime you would be doing something like that, I would definitely want to go to something hammerless. And, and that would be the advantage. It's about you know not having a place where things can snag. Um, 
all weapons are dangerous and all weapons should be treated with a high regard for their potential danger, but all weapons can be carried safely relative to the fact that it's a freaking gun. It's you got to know your platform, know your gun and know your procedure for it. That that's what it comes down to. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, Jason from PA here. This might be a little long, but I had an interest in Revelation yesterday. Uh, for a while I've said, you know, hey, we have to be cautious, America, or we'll find ourselves in a second civil war, um, and that we're headed that way. Um, but yesterday I realized something. It's already began. I don't think Americans have realized, even, you know, many of us, that the Ameri second American Civil War has already started. And I realized this by watching what's going on in the government right now. You have Trump's incoming administration, and then you have, you know, the present elements that are basically sabotaging leaks and all this. There's actually a political war going on in our federal government right now. It's a civil war. It started. It just hasn't gone to guns. And it was that revelation yesterday that this, like, literally, it's two sections in our government are fighting it out right now. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts. I mean, do you see that? I mean, I, I, it was just a dawning that, you know, just like our Civil War started off with fights, you know, senators killing senators on the congressional floor, it wasn't. When the guns started firing, the Civil War already started before that point. Um, so it's, it's just something I've realized with what's going on. On some levels, Jason, I, I see what you're saying, and I, I can concede and agree with you a little bit here and there, but, but the reality is this is the two mafia families fighting for control. And, and the problem is that they got a godfather that's not really loyal to either one of the families. That's the way. To, that's why this, everybody's going apeshit right now. Um, <clears throat> the Republicans know that Trump, while he's doing a lot of things the conservatives like, is a populist. He's not a conservative. The Democrats know this too, and they don't like it even more because he represents Republicans as a populist and see that's their thing. The other thing about this is there's been such a misinformation campaign by the media that even the members of the media believe their own bullshit. For the first time in my life, we have a president that out of the gate, almost every single reporter dreams of being the person that topples them. You know, like, like when a, a rookie cop, you know, gets on his first beat or whatever, and he dreams of finding the drug lord or something like that and bringing down like the Al Pacino type drug lord or something. That's like every, every beat reporter right now dreams of being the one that gets the information, the leak that brings down Trump. They hate him that much. So that makes it all look worse. The Democrats are, are actually emotionally hurt over this. And I don't mean the, the crybaby little bitches in the street whining and crying and screaming. I'm talking about the Democrat establishment. They, this stung for them. They never believed it could happen. Not they didn't believe it would happen. They didn't think it could happen. Right up until election night, they were like, we got this. We got, we got, they had no doubts. They, they had no doubts. And it came down as such a beatdown because of the way it happened. And the, the, all the popular vote shit, that's all nonsense. And they all know it's nonsense because this is the way this country's been run since its founding, okay? 
There's a reason we have the electoral college system. It makes a lot of sense in a republic. We do not live in a pure democracy. Um, and they all know that. And they're all fine with it as long as they win. They actually probably thought it was more likely that Trump could have won or been close in the popular vote, and then st still Hillary would have took it because, well, the blue wall did, did Trump beat the shit out of, right? I mean, and it was all because he just went there. So all you're seeing is this shit happens all the time. This is what our government looks like. Because Trump is such an agitation to the system, it, it's like it's a pus situation. Your, your Congress clowns and all these people in government, all these bureaucrats, are pus infecting America. And the president has always been a scab on top of the wound, so you couldn't see how bad the wound and how, how much pus was really in there. Trump ripped the scab off the wound. That's neither a pro or anti-Trump statement. That's a factual statement. You're just seeing the reality here. Now, the reason I played this call is because it gives me a chance to speak to something else. There is a scare tactic that's going around. It's coming out of alternative media. Um, specifically, a person that so many of you tell me I need to work with. I don't really want to work with him. He's been on the air. You can figure out who it is for yourself. But shit like, what happens when the social justice warriors get AR-15s and stuff? And there's going to be like an in-the-street shooting war uh, between these factions. Again, back to what I said before. If that ever does happen... Everybody to the right side of the spectrum is better at it. Everybody. Okay? We're way better at it. And you could just take that for what it is. But that to have a civil war like you're talking about, and again, let's understand something about what they call the American Civil War. The American Civil War wasn't a pure civil war. It was a pseudo-civil war. Meaning the South said, we don't want to be part of this anymore. And they, they seceded, which I believe was constitutional, by the way. Even though I didn't agree with the why, I believe the action was constitutional. And we want to go away. They didn't say, we're taking over. When they seceded, they didn't invade D.C. and start marching north. They, they said, we're leaving, piss off and leave us alone. A civil war is a fight for control. And the South wasn't fighting for control of the nation. They were fighting for their right to leave it. So it was a, 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 a pseudo-civil war, a, a, a partial civil war. A real civil war would be that one side just says, we're taking the hell over everything. Our side has had enough of your shit, we're taking over. To get either one of those, though, you have to have a willingness of the military to back the, the, the agitator side or such that the military is willing to split like it did in the, the, the pseudo-Civil War uh, that the U.S. had in the 1860s. The odds of that at this time are very, very, very freaking low. Very low. You're not going to see that. You're not going to see soldiers willing to leave to fight their own government at this point. I'm not saying there's none of them that don't kind of sort of like the idea, but the mindset's not there for it. What it would take to have something approaching that would be the opposed secession of a state or group of states like happened before here. So our government's kind of set up in a way that give the founders credit. It makes civil war very unlikely. It was something they were very concerned about. 
It's why a lot of the compromises of the Constitutional Conventions were reached. So that once they did it, it would immediately break apart. They wanted it to be able to stay together. And they did a pretty good job with the form of government. We have a pretty unique form of government, honestly. But let's say California voted for secession like they say they're going to do. They won't, but let's just say they did. They make believe land. And California says, you know what? Our people have spoken. We're out. We're leaving. And whoever's president at the time, Trump, the anti-Trump, whatever, I don't care, says, no, you're not. And he orders U.S. military forces into California to force them to stay into the Union. That's one possible outcome if the state said it was seceding. That's actually a pretty logical. The only way you have a true civil war is if, let's say, the California National Guard follows the orders of the governor and meets U.S. forces at the border. It could happen. I'm more worried about all the oxygen leaving my room right now than I am that. But the social justice warriors arming up with AR-15s and starting the civil war that way... The people that are telling you that, yeah, they want you to pay attention. They're going, listen to me, listen to me, because I don't even think any of them believe their own bullshit. I'll just leave it at that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Chris from Illinois. I had a question about Jerusalem artichokes. I took your advice last year and planted some tubers, and they grew really well, and I really enjoyed them. I left some of the tubers in the ground, like you said, and I'm wondering if I could uh, now – harvest some of those and start a new bed. I am in zone six and it's still pretty cold. Ground's still pretty frosty. But I was wondering if it worked kind of like a tulip bulb and I could do it now or I should wait till the soil's warmer. Thanks a lot for all you do. You can move them now, assuming that the ground is workable. Or you can move them later. But let's talk about how we get rid of the ones we don't want to understand when to move the ones we do want. <clears throat> the trick, and I learned this from Dave Jackie, is if you have Jerusalem artichokes that send out runners and they end up in places you don't want and you see them start to come up, don't do anything. Wait till they're about a foot to 18 inches tall and just pull them out of the ground and they'll pop right out at that point. And the thing that's supposed to be a tuber will be hollow. There'll be no energy in there. So the only thing we have to do is we got to get them moved before they really start to grow. As long as the tuber is dense, we can move it, put it where we want it, And it, it, in most climates, if we keep it under the soil where it belongs, it'll sprout when the conditions are right. And they're very, very cold-hardy. Um, so that's that's all you got to do. There's, there's no more to it than that. Um, the only reason you might not do it now is it might be too damn cold for you. And if the ground's frozen and hard, then you're likely to do more harm to them trying to get them out of the ground. I would say this. They come up when it's still pretty cold out in a lot of climates, so you probably want to do it soon. But that's all you need to worry about, as long as that tuber's dense. If it starts to send shoots up and stuff like that, there's no problem there. None at all. But it has to have that density so that it has the energy to propagate the next generation. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack David from Indiana calling about whether I can use topsoil from inside of a forest to start a raised bed along with some manure. Background is I've got lots of land that I can harvest some probably pretty good uh, dark topsoil from. I'd like to use this to start some raised beds and uh, rather than trying to take the topsoil from the pasture. Um, I'd like to take uh, scoop out some of the topsoil and then uh, put some manure in there, and I was wondering if this would be a good way to start uh, the topsoil for the raised beds. Look forward to your answer. Thanks. Love your show. Bye. 
Well, if you want to do raised beds and you want to start planting in them this year, like soon, because spring is coming, spring is coming. Spring's here today, by the way. It's going to be like 70 degrees today. Uh, and it's going to be in the 70s again tomorrow. Right, that's why I live here. Um, anyway, then you don't want to use manure. You want to use compost of manure. If you use straight manure, and you're, I hear you saying pasture, so I'm thinking cow, horse, you know, something like that. About the only manure you can throw right on your, your, your gardens is rabbit. Uh, there's some other cool manures. Duck manure is actually cool, but it's not real collectible. Uh, just I'll leave it at that. Um, you, you need to compost it, and it's probably best to be compost with a carbon. So if you're planning to do that, what I would say right now is make yourself up a big compost pile uh, using something like straw mixed with your manure and get that kind of um, you know that fast, rapid 18 to 28 day compost pile with turns every other day going and get that stuff composted and. Dan, as far as your forest soil, I like the idea of it, but you have to be careful with the execution of it. You're taking something that's pretty fragile away from an ecosystem that created it. So if you have enough land that we can take bits and bots here and there and then do something to help that heal, like you know, pull your leaves back and when you're done taking your, your scrape, bring the leaves back over and maybe you know bring some more, it should be fine. If you can get a source of soil of any you know decent dirt and mix it with compost and manure and some of that, it doesn't have to be all forest soil, you're going to be fine. You ain't going to have nothing to worry about. I would think of taking some stuff from the forest more of as an inoculum because there's just beneficial bacteria and nematodes and fungus and all kinds of wonderful stuff in that forest soil. And if we bring it into an environment conducive to making it propagate itself, it, it's like turbocharged inoculation. I would also say, before you say you're going to build a raised bed, why? There are good reasons to build raised beds. In some places, it's just an aesthetic thing. You just kind of need it that way. In some places where it gets really wet, it helps get roots up out of the, the wet zones of the soil. Uh, in some places like where I live, you need to do a raised bed just so you have enough depth for the plants because you have a rocky underside. But when I hear somebody saying words like pasture, and I start thinking more rural, and you know, in the ground is a good place for plants to grow. And if you were going to take that approach, what I would do is I would mark out your beds in the pattern that you want them in, and I would double dig the soil for the first time. And when I did that, I would double dig in a mixture of my composted manure and, and, and forest soil, and you'd likely have very, very good results with that. And then, you know, mulch and weed and keep going. And then the other thing is, a raised bed doesn't always have to be a box, right? If, if we want to do what I just said, but we want to bring in a little bit more material and bring that up like a, a light berm, and it's just up some, we don't need walls to contain it. I just want to caution everybody with the raised bed thing. It's a great technology. It's a great tool. It often empowers you to build gardens where the soil is so poor you couldn't really do it any other way. It often enables people to garden in a situation where it would cause trouble with the neighbors bitching if it looked like a farm, but since it's like it's a flower garden, it's okay. It, it has its it has its places, but it requires resources. 
It requires materials. It requires energy. And it requires all of those things in greater amounts than just building a bed in the ground does. And if you look at all of the successful urban spin farmers like Curtis Stone, they don't build raised beds. They farm the earth, the soil, the way a farmer does. And it's because if you're going to go to scale with it, it's cost prohibitive to do it all with raised beds. So hopefully that gives you kind of a totality of an answer there. And I'm not saying not to do raised beds. I'll be clear as to why. And if you're going to do it, you know, think about how you're going to do it based on the needs of the environment. Let's take another one. I know we've really beaten this dead horse about automation, but I, I got something that I saw today out on the road, and it, it absolutely blew my mind. And it's called a tow plow. Now, folks, just go on YouTube and just and YouTube tow plow. It, it's a trailer tow plow that's offset by the snow plow, follows the truck, and plows the second lane. Now, what's this have to do with automation? Well, it's it's a 50% automation of a job that we never thought would be automated. No one would ever think snowplow drivers. Well, <laughs> they've done it. And I this, to see this monstrosity down the road is absolutely incredible. So I just thought I'd share that with you folks. Bye. Well, uh, I looked this up, and it's... Just pretty much what the guy said. It's one one snowplow driver and a, a, a second blade off to the side, basically. Like if you've ever seen two plows going down the road together, basically it's one guy do two guys work to a degree because they don't plow that way everywhere. And snow plowing is not a full time job, so I don't know that this has a huge impact on jobs, right? Because most people that drive a snowplow work for a county or a city or what have you, and they do other things, you know, like. 80% of the year or more. And due to that, I don't know that this directly impacts employment, but it does once again show that it's not always complex technologies that can do displacement to employment. This is a pretty non-complex technology. I will say this. The driver has to be more skilled to do this than he does to drive a single plow. So it requires a little bit more skill, and that puts a little bit more skill set in the job, and maybe the people that keep that job are a little bit more secure in it because they have a little bit more skill. But again, I, I, I played this just because it does again show that even the places we try to think of as being immune to all of this advancement of technology may not be. May not be at all. Um, Again, I am massively concerned for the average working person over the next 10, 15 years. I really am. However, I think there will be massive opportunities for people who learn to adapt and don't just expect that, oh, this will be okay. I think we should all be working as hard as we can at what we do and try to be the best we can at it, but we should all be developing things beyond that, skills beyond that, knowledge beyond that. I think that was always important, but I think... I think the next decade and a half, it's going to be the most important uh, time in history for that mindset uh, that I can think of. Because there is not going to be this, this whole new wave of, of jobs. I think it will be a whole new wave of opportunities. And those are different. Jobs and opportunities are different. Let's take another one. Jack, this is Josh from Florida. I'm calling with a question in regards to setting up a first-year no-till garden in Zone 6B. Details, I was wondering 
about using comfrey as a chop and drop compost in place method to establish my soil in a first year no-till garden and if that is a good way to do it do I want to plant the comfrey in between the rows to chop and drop or to alternate planting spots inside of the row thanks for all that you do I appreciate uh, looking forward to getting the answer from you have a great day well let's start with the whole no-till thing I think no-till is a wonderful thing I think we should do as much of it as we can and I think the benefits of it are well known and uh, well proven that doesn't mean that I think that necessarily we shouldn't be willing to dig a bed in the first year. You heard me say to the other caller recently here to um, to double dig the beds the first year. That works, and it works really good, and it helps to get your initial organic matter incorporated. Now, if you want to sheet mulch and lasagna garden it and go that route and never till it, that works too. But you got to do something in that establishment phase, um, or it might be a season before you can get much out of it. You can do one or the other, and the double dig method can be done, and then you can sheet mulch and, and, and weed block with cardboard and do all that stuff too, and punch down through it when you plant your plants, and that works fantastic. And then you you can never till again. We can just keep mulching and pulling back mulch and adding mulch and adding fertility. And as long as we don't walk on it and compact it, as long as we keep it weeded, that that soil will just get better and better and better. So that that's fine. Comfrey as a as a a, a tool for mulching and fertility <clears throat> is wonderful. I've done whole shows on it. Um, so definitely where to locate it. I don't like the idea of between the rows. Because that's where you need to go to weed and harvest. And comfrey is pretty resilient, but it's not going to do well if you're constantly walking on it. And if you are um, planning on, on building a garden here and you want to develop you know, really dynamite soil over the first couple of years, you're going to spend a lot more work in the first couple of years than with like three and four and five because that's when you have to be big on weeds and grass and all that other stuff. So... If you're out there doing your maintenance you're supposed to, you're going to trample your comfrey. I don't like putting it in the garden bed because you, you pull it out and one little piece of root sticks in there and it's coming back. And it's occupying space now that, uh, that you have designated to provide food. Okay, um, If you want to take a bed and, and make it a comfrey bed, which is what I've done, that works fine. You just have one bed that's all comfrey. And you could try to grow some stuff in there, but it grows so aggressively and so thick that not a lot of things will grow with it. Some tall plants will. I planted peppers in mine, and they did fine because they got up above the comfrey, and uh, they did really well after that, and they were in there and happy. Um, I actually had to give them some fertility, though, because the comfrey said that had gone good at, at, at accumulating the fertility uh, in both root and, and leaf. So that's something to think about, too. So that's one way you can do it. You put in enough beds that one is your fertility bed. Okay. If you look at John Jevons, you know, the, the, how to grow more food than you ever thought you could in less space than you ever thought you could, something like that. He's doing kind of a French method, and they're using like 70% of the beds are actually growing just for fertility. And I think that's a bit much myself, but it does work. But, you know, if you had five raised beds for production and a sixth raised bed that's comfrey as a mulching bed 
and as a comfrey propagation bed, that would work. Another thing that you could do is let's say you're going to make your garden kind of a nice square patch. Well, what we could do is we could we could till or double dig or whatever, almost like a moat around that area and the circumference of it, and we could get our comfrey cuttings about every foot pop pop comfrey in there. And then basically create a, an edge border of comfrey and maybe leave a, a walkway on a side or two so that's like just surrounded with comfrey. And leave enough space so that you can walk all the way around, circumnavigate without trampling the comfrey. And then you can walk in and you can just take a, a like a, a rice knife or something, slice comfrey and drop it, slice comfrey and drop it, slice comfrey and drop it. And that would work really well as well. It'll be a little bit more work. Comfrey is not the bulletproof uh, super plant that people think it is where it can outcompete all weeds and stuff like that. So you will have to like give it some protection from the weeds. You want to keep, keep it cut, fed, and weeded. That's, that's the rules for comfrey. If you do that, comfrey will be good to you. So there's a couple different ways you can approach that. If anybody else has any ideas, love to hear from you in the show notes today in the comments for episode 1954. With that, let's take another one. Howdy, Jack. Lee Wilson from Casper, Wyoming, calling in with some thoughts on content creation. There is a very powerful tool available for anyone wanting to start a podcast, YouTube channel, or website. Details. I've been using the Adobe Creative Cloud since 2013. It is by far the most comprehensive content creation solution I have used. It's a monthly subscription. You can get all the applications for $50 a month or a single program for $20 a month. For podcasters, there is Audition. It's an easy-to-use yet powerful audio editing program. Video creators can use Premiere Pro for editing, After Effects for compositing, and Media Encoder for bulk rendering. Lightroom and Photoshop are powerful organization and editing tools for photos. I use them daily. I've been involved in audio and video content creation since 2000. I've also run my own YouTube channel, TGO Wyoming, since 2009. While I have used several different programs over the years, the Creative Cloud is the best I've found so far. Sure, you pay monthly for it, but in my opinion, it's worth it. The learning curve can be steep in some programs, but with resources like YouTube and Google, you can learn the programs in very little time. If you're serious about digital content creation, the Creative Cloud is worth considering. It has made a huge difference in my workflow and allowed me to release more and better content than I could have before. Thanks for all your hard work, Jack. It's much appreciated. So my first instinct is because... You know, when I buy a software product like Sony Vegas, I pay for it, and I've, I've been using it for years now, and I've never had to pay for it again. Though, uh, and it would have at the rate that you pay for full access to this cloud thing uh, in a year and a half, it's 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 you're dead even and you're gold from that point forward. But when I think about it in in, in totality, there's a real advantage to the type of content creation lifestyle that many people want to live today. In other words, wherever I go, any computer that I can access that cloud creation tool with will work. I don't have to like if I want it on my laptop and my my desktop. Some some compute you know some software they say you buy you get one one machine license and they're really rigid about the way they enforce it. Some say that, but you can put it on ten machines. It all depends. Uh, but but software companies have gotten better and better about enforcing that. Some will say you can put up the three machines, what have you. Um, but the fact that if you upgraded your computer, that nothing would change, that's that's pretty attractive. It, it really is. So that's another way to look at it. Before a lot of this lifestyle content creation stuff, imagine this. So you're you at a friend's place and you didn't think you had an opportunity to create content. You're on vacation 
and you realize that you do. And, you know, you do most of your, like, if you're like me, I do all my work on a desktop PC. I don't really use my laptop for a lot. I can do some basic stuff, but I'm not going to do some hardcore stuff, editing or whatever. But you get this opportunity, you, you, you shoot some video while you're there, and you want to produce it for your YouTube channel. You could use your laptop, even if it's not your normal machine, or you could use your buddy's computer. That, uh, it, it's pretty attractive that no matter what happens to your, t your, your, your hardware at home, The software that you use for content creation, editing, publishing, etc. would be safe. And that's one of the advantages of the cloud. So I don't know that I'll be migrating over to it. The main reason I brought this up, though, is there's a lot of you guys that are trying to figure out how to do your, your content creation. You're, you're new to this. You're coming at it. And you're deciding now what platform to use. It's very, it's very difficult for me to migrate to another platform. It's very difficult because I have a full-time business. And, and that is a complete new skill set to do the same thing I'm already good at. So I have to learn a new software to edit a podcast. And I right now can edit a podcast. Like when I'm done today, I'm editing this as I do it. When I finish this segment and click Render in Audacity... While it's rendering, I'm listening to the next call. Before I answer the next call, I've yanked it into Vegas, dropped it in the timeline. When I, when I finish the last word I'm going to say today, from the time I do that to the time that, the, uh, that I'm FTPing the file to the server, is about, well, it's really about 20 minutes. But that's because it has to go through level later on. The amount of work I put into it is about two minutes. I've had people before that said, I'll make a deal with you and I'll do all your editing of your podcast. And I'm like... You know, it would actually be more work for me for you to do my editing than for me to do my editing. For me to provide you everything so that you could do it would take me more time than to just do it. And they don't believe me. And I'm wondering, how do you guys that are like professional editors do this then? Because I can whip this shit out so quick, so it's hard for me to migrate. So when you're making your decision about what platforms to use, don't use what I use just because I use them. Use, like, look at everything that's available and realize it's all going to take effort and time to learn. So pick something that scales with you. And I think cloud services would be a great idea. The downside, you know, if you learn to use something like Audacity, it's free and there's free tools out there and there's cheap software out there that does an okay job. Um, I do most of my video editing anymore, honestly, God, with YouTube Editor. Uh, just go to youtube.com slash editor and all your shit's there and you can, and there's stuff you can't do. But when I, like this recently this weekend, when I made, uh, my redneck pho, uh, my, you know, basically my bone, deer, deer and quail bone broth soup, I, uh, I shot like six little videos and I, that never, it never saw my computer. I used a cloud editor, right? I uploaded it all to, uh, to YouTube, uh, private so that you couldn't see it. I went to YouTube slash editor and just went boom, 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 dropped them all in, and then clicked on transitions and went boom, boom, boom dropped the transitions in, hit publish, and then wrote title and description and all that stuff, and that was it. So um, if you're going to be doing things more advanced and sophisticated than that, I would suggest when you're ready to make investments, to, you take a really good look at things like this, And everything that's out there. And don't look at it from the standpoint of Jack uses it or Jack says it's best. 
look at what it does, how it scales, how it produces, how it, how you work with it, how it works with you, and then make a decision what's best for you long term. Because you, if you are successful, you will get to a point where, yeah, I might like to use this other service, but I don't, I don't have time for this now. I really don't. So it, it, don't overanalyze it, but you know, give it some serious consideration when you're starting out. All right, with that, let's take another one, an easy one, by the way. Hey, Jack, this is Nick from Ohio. Hey, my question is, how do you deal with trolls? Uh, details are, I've got a small YouTube channel I'm just starting to build out. i got about 80 subscribers right now, and uh, I got my first troll today. I guess that means I'm doing something right because somebody wants to hate on me, uh, but I don't know how to deal with them. I'd like to take them to the ground, but it's like I heard you say one time, if you argue with stupid people, they'll bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. So I don't know what to do. Um, any thoughts on that would be great, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for all you do, man. Uh, you put out a great product, and uh, it definitely brings uh, improvement to my day. Uh, thank you, and uh, hear you on the air. Bye. Um, two words. Ban them. Immediately. Don't worry about it. Don't care about them. Don't waste your time with them. Get rid of them. Ban you, especially YouTube, because it's so simple. Ban this user from channel. Boom. Done. And there's times when I've pushed back and pointed out what a moron they are, how stupid they are, how inaccurate their statements are. And it's usually pretty easy to do because most of these people are ill-informed. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, but they're either there just to be a dick or they believe their own bullshit. You're not going to convince them. You're not going to win them over. They're not going to become a super fan of yours. All they do is drain your energy and your time commitment. And every time that I've just banned somebody, within five minutes, I've forgotten about the experience. I'm not worried about it. I don't care. It doesn't matter. They're angry. I don't give a shit. Okay. Every time I've engaged them, I've almost always wished I had just banned them. The only... Thing I have to point out is there's a difference in someone that's just a dick and just being a troll and someone who is legitimately pointing something out that you might want to engage in discussion with. But the minute you realize you're dealing with an actual troll, get rid of them. And I'll explain it in a way that will make perfect sense. We tend to act differently online than we would offline. And we don't just do that from a standpoint of like a troll wouldn't be a complete asshole to your face where you can knock his freaking teeth out offline, but you wouldn't tolerate it the way that you should do either. And what I mean by that is, let's imagine that uh, you were having, because people are invited to make comments. It's not like they weren't, so it's not like some random person off the street, but let's say you did a, a barbecue day for your neighborhood, okay? And you put out like on Nextdoor and Facebook and stuff like that. If you live in this, you know, this area, we will have a meet our neighbors barbecue and you're welcome to come by anytime between noon and seven o'clock, uh, and, and hang out and meet your neighbors. And so people start showing up and you know, there's a couple of people here and there and people are talking and you're running the grill and hand stuff out and then comes on the door and, and you, you go to the door and you open the door and the first thing the person says is, you're stupid for doing this. And just doesn't say another word. Would you say, you know what, come in and let me explain to you why I'm not. Or would you say, get the, off my property and shut the door in their face. And effectively ban them from your property. And if they refuse to leave, 
Well, you'd pick up the phone and you'd dial 911 and say, I have a person on my property who I've asked to leave. They refuse to leave. They're here causing trouble, and I'd like them to go away now, please. Or you would physically remove their ass one way or another. You would get them off your property, and then you would go back to all the rest of your neighbors, and they'd say, well, what's this problem? You'd say, I don't know. He's an idiot. And they'd probably, because it's a community, they'd probably go, oh, that guy, yeah, he's a jackass. And you would just go back to your normal life. You wouldn't say, you know what, let me bring you in and explain to you why you're wrong for calling me. Let me get all these other people here to explain why you're wrong. You would just banish them from your pro because it's your property. Okay, your YouTube channel is your property. It's your property. YouTube agrees with that. Now, they also say they have some claim of it as well, but they give you a lot of it. YouTube gives you the ability to ban people from your channel. Because they recognize, as the content creator, you are the owner of the content. And they allow you to control what gets done with your content. On your blog, you absolutely own it. On a Facebook page, you found it. You own it. You can ban people. And I just think the easiest thing to do is ban them. Whenever somebody does something to you online that you would disassociate with them if they did it offline. You disassociate with them online. You give them nothing because it's what they want. They want you to engage them. And this is why it's unfair, and I've had to learn this over the years, it's unfair to everybody else that likes what you're doing when you're engaging a troll. Now, occasionally with skill, it can be done in such a way that you provide entertainment to your followers. I've done that, and it can be done. But more often than not, it drains your time and your energy that you could be spending producing new content for your members or answering questions for your members. And I'll tell you the other thing that it does. If you do this for any length of time, you're going to get the same freaking question over and over and over to where you're just like, oh my God, no mosquitoes won't breed in your swales. You're going to feel that way. It might be something else, but there'll be things like that. No, the ducks won't fly away. They're domestic ducks. They're too fat to fly away, plus they're fed and housed and watered, and they don't want to leave. You'll feel that way, okay? But the reality is, the person asking that question, unless they're a troll, um, they just found you today. They don't know that you've been doing this for six years and you've answered that question a hundred times. And the problem is when you engage with trolls, you start then taking it out on people that you don't need to be doing it to. The person asking the question for the 400th time. The best thing to do is just give that stock answer. Or if you get stuff all the time, and I'm going to do this with some of the stuff I get all the time, make a video just for that. And when somebody asks about it, I've explained that many times. Here, boom, boom, send. Right? Now you've answered the question and you haven't put any energy into it. Or don't do anything. If you've done it right... And what I mean by you've done it right is you've, you've put out good content for long enough that you've built a community around yourself. If you don't do anything, sooner or later somebody from your community will answer it for you. So you either answer it politely, you create a stock answer and provide it, or you do nothing. If you're engaging with trolls constantly, inevitably you'll, you'll, you'll talk to that person like they're an idiot, even though you don't mean to, because you're irritated and pissed off at the trolls. But when you start banning the trolls, you start to understand why you always feared your parents more when they were pissed off at you and calm than when they were pissed off at you and loud. When somebody's pissed off at somebody and they're yelling at them, 
you're an idiot, you're sit down, whatever, right? They, they've lost control. Have you ever noticed really evil characters in movies? They never behave that way. Like I'm watching right now that Man in the High Castle that was recommended, I think by Jason and PA recommended, I'm in season two already. Uh, the Nazis in that, great actors. When they when they have somebody that they're they're really leaning on, they they never yell and scream. They just, you know, it would be a shame if something happened to you. Okay, that's because they know they can make it happen. They know they have the authority. They know they have that power. When you're dealing with trolls online, you have all the power unless you give it to them. And by simply deleting and banning immediately. And yes, they'll make fake account. Oh my God, there's, there's adult children out there. They'll make a fake account again and they'll come back. But eventually, when they get nothing, they go away and bother somebody else. They go away and bother somebody else. And, and that's, that is the best approach to them. And I, I wish that somebody had told me this when I was doing like episode five. Because I would have been able to do a better job over the years for the people that really matter had I taken this philosophy from the beginning. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. How you doing? Justin here. Got a question either for you or somebody on your expert council. I recently purchased a, uh, a Cabela's 80-liter dehydrator. And I dehydrated my beef jerky and got it to where it was done and then I went to go store it and I chose the dry canning method uh, some of the recipes were a little bit different but pretty much the same and uh, I got a good seal on my jars and when I woke up the next morning there was like some liquid looking white stuff in the bottom of it uh, just want to know if that's a concern and you know maybe I didn't properly do it right i'm not sure any uh feedback from you or a member of the expert council would be great thanks jack for all you do bye okay so this is what i'm going to say first of all if you want to store beef jerky in a jar this is what i think you should do i think you should get the jar and you should open it up make sure it's clean in there i think you should throw the beef jerky in it and just put the lid on the jar That's it. If you want to have a desiccant, instead of buying a little packed desiccant, get a small handful of plain white rice, throw it in the bottom of the jar, take the beef jerky, put it in a jar, put the lid on it. Don't vacuum seal it. Don't put it in a bag and vacuum seal it. Put it in a bag, put a little bit of rice in there if it makes you feel better, roll the air out of the bag, ziplock the bag, you're good. The whole purpose of beef jerky is that it stores very, very well without any real additional treatment. We just The main reason we want to put it in something that doesn't have a lot of air exchange is because it'll get drier and drier and drier and drier. It will continue to dry, and a lot of people like their jerky with a little bit of chew left in it. I, I like it that way, and I also like it... Sliced really thin and made like a potato chip. It's, it's good both ways. If you're ever in a Love's gas station, look for a beef jerky called Roberson's. It's the second kind. It's pretty awesome stuff. Um, I don't know where else they sell it, but they definitely sell it at most Love's uh, truck stops. Certainly throughout Texas they sell that stuff. And uh, But on the 
Uh, what happened with yours? This is this is I, I can tell you what happened. You finished your jerky. <clears throat> you stuck in the jar, and you did a dry can where you seal it in a jar. You got a very high level of vacuum to the the can, and that meant that you, if you think about it, if if your hand was in there and vacuum, so what you would feel is the blood almost boiling in your hand, right? As it tried to pull out of your skin, right? So what happened was the residual moisture in the jerky was drawn out, which we really don't want to do. And another concern I would have, you're going to a low-oxygen environment with moisture. There's a slight potential for botulism with that. I think it's very slight because of the salt level in the jerky itself. But there's no reason to play that dance. So what I'm going to suggest is unjar it, throw a little rice in it. I'd eat it, but I don't have to store very much. But just put it in a jar, put a lid on it. That's all we got to do with our beef jerky. That's that's the best thing to do. If you've ever noticed, no one sells canned beef jerky, you know, or, or, or dry canned beef. Jerky. Nobody sells that. Now you will see a lot of the packaging. It's kind of shrink wrapped around it, and you can do that, but it's just not necessary. It, it, it's, again, you got to think about what is the product that you're dealing with. We want to always vacuum seal everything. As preppers, we go out and we buy a vacuum sealer. We vacuum seal everything from friggin' dried carrots to bullets, right? We just because I got it now, I want to throw it in a jar, throw a little bit of rice in there if you want to make sure that some extra moisture is taken up, and and go on with your life. Hi, Jack Courtney out of Central Indiana. I just wanted to call in and say that I, as a teacher have beat the traditional education system. Background, I'm a high school science teacher. I love teaching. I love the kids. I love science. But you opened my eyes to how bad the system truly is. And then when I had my daughter a year ago, I realized that I could never allow her to be a part of this system because of how broken it is. So I actively started looking for jobs that would allow me to stay home and homeschool her. I was a little heartbroken because I do love teaching. And then I realized that these online teaching positions were opening up all over the state and I was able to get an interview and I was offered a job in September. I walked in that day to my principal's office and told him my two weeks, gave him, gave him my two weeks. He was shocked, said he couldn't believe I was abandoning the school and abandoning my students. And I told him that I would always put my family first. I'm sorry, but my family always comes first. I would have never had the balls to do that without um, you, Jack, really pushing everyone that listens to make their lives better for themselves. Now I am having the opportunity to um, tutor with homeschool groups around the area, make a little extra side income, as well as get to know some of the homeschool families. I cannot thank you enough for the positive change that you've had in my life. Thank you. Have a great day. Um, I'll, I'll tell you flat out, whenever anybody out there in, in a, a real meaningful and a positive way says, because of you, I did, it feels great. That one, though, man, I hit you in the feels, man. It really does to hear, uh, to hear someone say that that way. So, so thank you for letting me know. Uh, on the, the concept as a whole, I did a little research, and apparently this uh, online teacher thing as employment is a real thing, and it's growing. And, man, um, it just... I, I hate to sound too much like you know, accepting confirmation bias, but I, I really feel like it 
it kind of fits right in line with what I've been saying is coming for a long time. I mean, homeschool has grown so rapidly. And I, I, I think what people don't get is what it really shows is a dissatisfaction with the status quo. And it also shows parents saying, well, I don't like the public option, right, the government school. And I don't have the ability to, like, say, I don't like, because there's, there's parents that are like, I don't necessarily have a problem with government schools. I have a problem with the government school that, based on my zip code, my child must go to. And I want to put them over here, and they're told no. And then they say, well, my other problem is I do not have the financial resources to send my child to, you know, uh, a, a private institution. I don't have the money. It's expensive. So I'll take it on as my own responsibility. But when we start looking at online platforms, what they do is they make things infinitely more scalable. And when things become more scalable, they cost less per unit. When they cost less per unit, more people can afford them. When more people can afford them, more people buy them. When more people buy them, a, 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 a niche develops. Over time, a niche develops into an industry. As an industry develops... And as more and more people participate in an in industry, the scalability increases due to what's called economy of scale, driving the cost per unit even lower, and then the industry kind of takes on its own legs. And then others, other than the pioneers, begin to enter the industry and they begin to innovate. Because what happens is the people that come in first, they often establish dominance, but the people that come in later... They use the best available technology of the time, and just like me stuck on Sony Vegas, the, the embedded base is often very sluggish to move to new platforms and new technologies and new techniques, so your competitors that come in to innovate and push the industry forward drive the price per unit down further because that's how they know they take away something called market share. And for a very long time, education has been immune to this market cycle because of the artificial uh, monopoly created by government mandate. Not only did government say, here's a public option, and, and, and basically steal money to do it, so they don't have to make a profit, and it makes it very difficult for anybody to compete with it that has to run a for-profit model. They also said, and by the way, everybody has to go. They put a mandate and they made education compulsory. So the parent had a difficult time choosing, well, we just won't be part of the system. They had, and they had to do some sort of dog and pony show around a thing we call homeschooling to make the state complacent and, and to make them stay away and not come take your kids from you. And they did a really good job of propagandizing it and making people think, well, these people are awkward and socially inept and whatever. And, and eventually homeschooling got popular enough and enough of them started like winning science fairs and getting college scholarships and just kicking the shit out of the government school uh, students to prove that that was all bullshit, right? So that took on its own level of acceptance now. I think there's a very high esteem for homeschool children today among educated Americans. Actually, not, it doesn't mean they went to school. It means they have a freaking education, right? There's a difference there. Um, they, they've seen past this, this stigma, this, this propaganda. And now we're moving into this world of online education. And what people say is, well, we can't, 
have kids just learning by themselves. I think that's bullshit. Kids generally do learn by themselves. They learn all kinds of things. But direction from a, a, a person who's a good educator is a good idea. That's why you'll buy a course online that, that doesn't come with a diploma or a degree or a certificate because you just want to know how do I X. The person's made a compelling enough argument that you can learn that from their course, so you buy their course. And if you get your money's worth, then you're happy. So you might buy more courses. But there is, you know, you can do a lot of things self-directed as a learner, but especially with younger children, they need direction. And some of these technologies now, basically a teacher could sit and basically have a virtual classroom and, 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 and like see students and call on students and know a student. Like, I guarantee you there's somebody working on a technology that works like this right now. Kids sit in front of the screen, supposed to be doing his work, is screwing off like, like, the, like they do in classrooms. That like the teacher gets an alert, this kid's screwing off and can call on him. Hey, Johnny, Johnny, yeah, Johnny, yeah. Who was the first treasurer of the United uh, Secretary of Treasury of the United States? And put him on the spot, just like a regular classroom. But making that infinitely scalable, where one teacher might be able to teach a hundred students at one time in a live environment, and might be able to support up to five hundred. Computers can do the majority of the grading, and the teacher can address the things that need to be specifically explained that the student's not understanding. It's coming. It's coming. The only thing standing in its way right now, honestly, is the fact that the government schools have become a daycare center. And, gee, if the government hadn't screwed that up. My, my uh, uh, niece, for a while, was basically running a, a daycare center out of her house. She had a group of parents that loved her. By the way, she has a degree in, in psychology. Okay, so she was actually and she, very good dealing with children. So she was highly qualified to do what she was doing. And uh, her husband's ex-wife, just to be a effing bitch, reported her. Reported her. And they got shut down. So... There will be ways that that will be innovated as well, where you could have children at a place at somebody's private residence or whatever, and that starts to open whole new levels of this thing up. What we need in education is not a solution. We need hundreds of solutions. In the end, the, the goal is for the child to get the best education that that child is able to get. And if we try to put that into a complete point of conformity, and everybody gets the same thing, that can never happen. People learn at different speeds in different ways. And most children would learn faster outside of the environment than they do inside of it. It's not just the really smart kids being held back by the dummies. It's a lot of the kids we're calling dummies that are actually really smart, but the system doesn't work for them. They just want to get on with it. And, and it's also this belief that we have to teach children these things. This way, common core math, this way. And we have to, they have to pass all these tests and shit. No, what people need is, uh, from an education, is the ability to discern for themselves what they want to learn next and then the capability to acquire that knowledge. And, and that's, that's what can be done at scale. And the scale's coming. And I know some teachers, I don't know if you let them know about this because they're fed up. I didn't realize that there were like, not just entrepreneurial things, there were actual jobs. Like you could put a resume in and apply and get a job as a teacher 
online and get outside of the state's mandated system. I checked, and there's some of those in Texas, just saying. Those of you that are teachers out there, you might want to look into this. And thank you so much for calling in and telling me your story, and thank you for having the courage to be defined of the system. And the hell with this, this administrator that tells you you're abandoning the school as though you have some sort of moral obligation to propagate their bullshit on their behalf. <sighs> Man, good for you. Good for you. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I hope you got as much pleasure out of that last call as I did. I don't know that it's possible for you, because, man, that, that made my, that made my freaking month to hell with my day. Um, <clears throat> but if you like this show and you want us to keep doing what we're doing so you can hear more stories from people like that, consider supporting us by simply doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go there, you click a link, you go to Amazon. It looks the same, it works the same, it functions the same, it costs the same. There's no special jack surcharge when you do this. You buy your stuff, and that's it. All you got to do is T-SPAS first. That's it. And I'll tell you, I heard from somebody yesterday, it's like a hardcore listener that said, I'm going to buy a whole bunch of uh, computer stuff. I'll send you all the stuff I'm going to buy so you can make affiliate links for me and send them back to me. I'm like, no, I don't think you get this. T-SPAS, click link, buy stuff. Doesn't matter what. I get credit. It's that easy. That's how easy it is to support this show. And thank you to all of you that do your Amazon shopping through T-SPAS. Um, it, it's been a great uh, new way for us to be able to grow the show. That said, uh, we do put reviews up. And today I have a pretty cool review for you. So I'm leaking something that I wasn't going to leak until I did it. Because I was thinking today, what am I going to put up on the on the... Uh, site for item of the day, and I had an idea, and then I like that didn't really work, so I'm like, this new cast that I bought, I'm gonna do it, and it kind of fits in with the rods that I put up recently, the collapsible rods. I am working on a fishing kit that will be in a bag. The bag is awesome. Where do you see this bag? And that's gonna be a bag like you can put behind a truck seat, right? Or you can put like in the back of an SUV. That'll take about the same space as a good sized range bag, like a pistol range bag. That's it. Inside that bag, two full-size rods, maybe more, and everything you need when you get that, like, oh, look, there's water over there. I wonder if there's fish in there. Grab bag and go. Five minutes later, you're fishing. Well, one of the challenges with stuff like that is always bait, and I've given you solutions with, like, Berkey Gulp and stuff like that, and people can use artificials and all. But my grandfather had a saying. The best bait comes from the water you're fishing in or possibly from a rock on the bank around it. And it's true. Fish eat what swims where they swim. That's how they, that's how they live without somebody coming and feeding them. You know, the, the Walmart truck doesn't pull up and throw a bunch of worms in there once a day. Alright? Even though worms are good bait. And there's probably less worms end up in a creek than you would think. Only when it's really heavy rain events and they get washed in. So what's in that water is great. Now, depending on where you live, what I'm talking about may not be legal. It is legal here. I have verified it six ways to Sunday so that I'll get my ass in trouble. But a cast net is basically a net that we take and we hold it, and just the right way to do this, and we throw it. It goes out like an umbrella. It lands in the water, and when we pull it, weights close up, and we get fish in it. And in Texas, all non-game fish can be taken with a cast net, which includes bluegills and things like that, but certainly shad and chubs and shiners and large minnows and things like that. So what this does for me is gives me the ability to catch bait right out of the water. 
here's what makes it special. I was like, I wonder how small of a cast net is made. Because I have a four-foot one that I take to Florida. It folds up pretty small, and it fits in my suitcase. Because I pack like a dude instead of a woman, it doesn't put me over the 50-pound limit, even though it's pretty heavy from all the lead on it. Well, it turns out they make a three-foot cast net from this company called Betts. And they market it as a kid's cast net. They get a little kid on the front holding it because it's only three foot when he holds it up to the ground. So it really, this, the, the, the end to end measurements when it's spread out is a six, is six foot. It's a three foot radius, six foot diameter, I guess you'd say. And, uh, I'm like, that was cool. So I'm, I'm like, it's gotta be smaller than my four foot net. I'm thinking it'll work with my project well, well. I buy it, it comes and it's in a regular box like they put cast nets in, which is a pretty big plastic box. But I'm looking in there and it like rolls around. I take this thing out and it's like about as big as maybe maybe four decks of playing cards folded up. Fits in one pocket of the bag. Badass. And then think about this. You're throwing a six-foot cast net, right? Like a man. In a creek with all kinds of shit you can get stuck on with trees around you and stuff. Not so good. So compact, lightweight, works. Awesome stuff. And for those of you that have ever thrown a cast net before... Learn with a smaller net. The smaller the net, the easier it is to learn. I uh, I throw a technique that's called the 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 weight in tooth or the in tooth or in teeth method. Um, I actually even do that a little differently than a lot of people do it. I'm going to put out a video next week of me throwing this net for you guys so you can see how I do it. A lot of people don't like that. It works really well for me. I think it's a Northern Florida thing. When I was a kid in Jacksonville, Florida, every kid I knew that had a cast net, threw it the way that I throw it. And it is a little bit different, but it works. But there's lots of different methods, and you can go look them up and all. But a smaller net, it's easier to do. This would be good for a kid to learn with as well. Um, but for me, it's about a compact kit. Check it out, the Betts 3-foot compact cast net. You can find that at today or just on the front page of the Survival Podcast. will be right below today's episode. Now time for the song of the day. The song of the day kind of is going to actually sort of end this whole pining love song phase. It's beginning to change in tempo and whatever. It's Mr. Sandman. Almost everybody out there, I think, has probably heard this song at one time. At least everybody, at least as old as me. I'm getting pretty old, I guess. More and more of these people that are that are being born in these years are people that I know well, okay? Um, and uh, But you're starting to hear this this kind of movement toward rock and roll. But yet we have one more year of this going. And it this is kind of like a, a song that typifies this era of the 50s. Like I said uh, earlier, that song Shaboom, right? That that song typifies the 50s as well from the, the crew cuts, right? It was covered by a bunch of people. I think the Spinners and the Commodores both covered it. But that version, that first version, really typifies the 50s. So does this. So much so that when I when I saw this was the number one song of the day, it, it gave me one of those flashback memories that you have of like long ago that you never really thought of. When I was a kid in Jacksonville, Florida, before my family really went nuclear with all of their problems, and I had a somewhat normal childhood at that, especially an 80s childhood, normal 80s childhood. And uh, <clears throat> there was this radio station that played oldies. And, you know, in 1980, a song from 1954 was an oldie. And there was one night a week, and I don't remember which, where you called in and requested songs. And there were some songs I liked from that era, and I remember trying, you could, and it was hard, man. It wasn't like today where everybody has an iPod. Like, you either had a record or a cassette, 
or you heard it on the radio. That was it. And there was only so many options on the radio. So when they had request shows, people, I guess people don't really think about this anymore. Man, people jammed the phone lines to request a song. And only occasionally would I get through. But this song was played almost every time that happened. So now we're getting a point in history where even people as young as me have like a tangible touch to some of the things going on in history. Number one song of the year, 1954, Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes. With that, this has been Jack Spierko helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Mr. Sandman